Today we're going to be talking about conviction, having convictions, biblical convictions, things that we hold dear, things that we hold sacred, things that we have deep down inside of us, uh, convictions, things that we won't negotiate regarding, uh, things that are true, uh, true, uh, truths about God, truths about His world, uh, how He works. The Bible wants us to have convictions. Um, they're to be personal, and yet not personal. They're to be personal convictions because we, we personally embrace these things. But they're not personal because they don't come from within. They actually come from without. And then we embrace them so they're within, if that makes sense. Christian convictions are those things based upon reality, what God has said, what God has done. See, I'm even speaking about convictions with conviction. Um, convictions are important for Christians because uh, there are always allurements, there are always uh, new ideas, there are always opponents and questions and conflicts, opportunities to show whether or not we actually live our lives by conviction. We're to know certain things about God and His world and to have them so grip us that they affect our thinking. They influence what we will do. They influence what we won't do. We might call them non-negotiables. Life is filled with compromises. Compromises are good. Um, alternatives are good in certain settings, in certain contexts. It's necessary. Everyone who's part of a family, whoever's been part of a family, which would include all of us, knows how important compromise is at the right time. And yet, as Christians, we're supposed to have certain things that we hold near and dear, and we, we, we just simply cannot budge. They guide us, they direct us, they influence us, because they're, they're true. As one person said, they're capital T true. They're not true to you, true to me. These are, these are true truths, real realities. It's important for you to have these as a, as a Christian. They're important for us to have as a church. Because it will guide us, it will direct us, it will keep us from doing certain things. It will compel us to do other things. The book of Titus is where we learn a lot about church convictions. So if you have a Bible, I would love to have you join me in opening to Titus chapter 1, where we see a lot about conviction. What's the church supposed to do? What's the church supposed, supposed to embrace? What are our convictions to be? Our, our, our guiding principles non-negotiable guiding principles. What are we here to do? What are we here to be? What's it about? How do we keep from being distracted? How do we keep from pursuing the next big thing so that we can be relevant to God? Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor named Titus who's pastoring a church in Crete, in the Mediterranean. And what happens is in the introductory verses, Paul speaks with great conviction. And in micro form, we see what he will unpack later, telling Titus to do these things. So in his introduction, in the opening five verses, he's speaking about his own convictions, but then later he's going to tell Titus to have the same convictions. 
So he's not saying, Titus, what I'm going to do is send you, or I want you to be in Crete, and I want you to take a, a survey amongst all the Cretans. Is that right? Cretans? I want you to take a survey and just find out what people are looking for in a church. He doesn't say to do that. He, he doesn't even say, I want you to find whatever Christians there are and ask them what they're looking for. No. I want you to go and I want you to set up a church the way I tell you to set up a church because there's a right way. It's conviction. And I love the opening verses so much so that we didn't get through them last time because we, we, we get this, this sense of Paul's convictions before he starts unleashing them on Titus and by extension the church and by extension a couple thousand years later on us. So my prayer is that it helps Omaha Bible Church. It helps you as an individual, but it helps Omaha Bible Church just to be reminded of what things are, are non-negotiable, what things that we, that we really need to hold near and dear to keep our perspective, to, to keep um, from playing church, so to speak, uh, to stay relevant, because this way we'll be relevant to God, we'll always be relevant. So last time we looked at, we began looking at a, a list of seven convictions uh, that we can observe from the Apostle Paul in the introduction, in the opening five verses. And we got through five of them. We're going to do all of them this morning, uh, the, the remaining two. And I'm going to review a little bit on the first five and even give you some extra, okay? So even if you heard last time, I'll give you some, some extras because there's plenty there. And then we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper when we are done, remembering what Jesus has done. His work is finished on our behalf. We'll do that with conviction, by conviction, because he told us to do that. So, seven conviction kinds of words. I kept it to one word. The first word we see from the Apostle Paul, or the idea, is authority. Christians have convictions about authority. In verse 1 of Titus 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God, so he's under God's authority, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is an authority word. I won't say much more about that. I won't give you too much new but apostle, in the, in, the, in the New Testament, you have messenger, angelos, angel, who brings a message. Sometimes they're angel, angelic beings, sometimes human beings. They bring a message, and it has a certain kind of authority. But, but then, it, this is like messenger on steroids, okay? This is, this is ratcheted up messenger, apostle, okay? When, when, remember that old ad that when, when what was it, E.F. Hutton? What? When E.F. Hutton speaks, What? People listen, okay? So all the middle age and older people got that. <laughs> when an apostle would speak, a true apostle, not a faux apostle, a fake apostle like we might have today, when an apostle spoke, it's gospel truth. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if they're speaking with apostolic authority, is speaking. That's why I said last week, uh, this is a red letter book. Because he has apostolic authority. Authority is a huge big deal for us. These aren't uh, words to be compromised. I remember getting in a discussion one time with someone, and they said, well, that's just what Paul thought. What I care about is what Jesus says. Well, I wish they would have learned or listened closer in Sunday school. Because the, the concept, the idea, and I'm not, and this isn't a new concept. The idea is, if you're an apostle of someone, you carry their authority. So when Paul says things we don't like, we're hating on Jesus, is what we're doing, if he's speaking with apostolic authority. 
So let's have convictions about authority. We're under authority like Paul is under authority, and yet he is also an authority, and so we're learning about church. We're not saying, well, I don't really care about this because this isn't Jesus. Well, actually it is. A second word is the the ever-controversial word election. Election. We all know what elections are right about now. (sighs) Make it stop already. It's when we choose, right? We're going to elect a president. Well, the Bible talks about election when God chooses. God chooses to save. He elects. And so we see that in this book. And it's with conviction Paul speaks, not cowardice. Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. He's got conviction about that. I, 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 I'm the Apostle Paul, and I believe in the doctrine of election. For the sake of the elect, I do what I do. That they would come to believe in Jesus. And this is going to come up later in the book. All of these are going to come up later in the book. Because Titus needs to have these convictions. And then the church, the, the, the Cretans, right? They need to have these convictions. And by extension, we need to have these convictions. How in the world can you do biblical church ministry if you don't believe with conviction in the doctrine of election? Well, lots of people do, and bizarre things happen. But we need to have that kind of conviction. Now, here's letter 2A. No, that, that's letter 2A. Let's do letter 2B. I'm trying to sneak more in and keep seven points because seven is the number of perfect... Never mind. <laughs> a lot of people have gotten in a lot of trouble making issues of numbers in the Bible. So sometimes they're significant, sometimes they're not. In my sermons, they always are. No, I'm just kidding. To be would be sin. And here's why I want to say that. The reality of divine election that God chooses so that people would come to believe in Jesus is is inseparably linked to the reality of sin. Okay, we're going to see this later in the book. We're not going to see it right now. But I want to bring this up because this is where the controversy always is. If you believe that people are sinful, if you believe in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, that people are dead in their sins, spiritually dead, incapable, they can't initiate. They don't, dead people don't do anything. They don't respond to the gospel. If you believe that, which is what the Bible teaches, then you need election. Because apart from election, God choosing some to be saved, many, millions, countless numbers of people to be saved, apart from God choosing, apart from God electing, how many people would ever be saved? How many people would believe the gospel? Zero. See, what happens is if you don't have a biblical view of sin and depravity, People are spiritually helpless because they're spiritually dead. If you don't believe that, of course you're not going to believe in election. The two end up going hand in hand. When people say, I don't believe in the doctrine of election, I don't like Omaha Bible Church, or I don't like you. I know they don't believe in the biblical reality of depravity. I know they don't believe that people are dead in trespasses and sins and therefore incapable of doing anything. I just know it. Because... 
The gospel is going to go forth and spiritually dead people are going to raise their hand and make a decision for Jesus? Never, ever, 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 ever. God has to do something. And the Bible teaches that God, before the foundation of the world in Ephesians chapter 1, chose. And you say, that's not fair. No, fair is everybody goes to hell. Because we're all sinners according to Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. We follow our own lusts. Fair, God damns everybody. See, if you don't get that, you'll never swallow the big pill called election. Okay, that sounds kind of negative. Paul doesn't mean it negatively. I mean, even notice it in the context. For the sake of the faith, he wants them to come and come to believe in Jesus. For the sake of the faith, they need to believe in the gospel of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul's preaching the gospel, planting churches, doing all things that he does because he wants those God has chosen before the foundation of the world to come to believe in Jesus. And he, he, he knows faith comes by hearing, Romans chapter 10. So he's preaching. Set up churches that do preaching. Now, this gets exciting too. In Titus, there's a big emphasis on evangelism. Okay? The church at Crete is to be preaching Christ to people. They're to be preaching Christ to people and they're to be committed to the gospel, protecting it, promoting it. It's an evangelistic kind of letter. I hope Omaha Bible Church gets more motiva- motivated about evangelism in studying Titus. But does anyone know how the Cretans are described in the book of Titus? Oh, that's a good place. We found out the best demographics in all of the Mediterranean where people were seeking and they're seekers and they're wonderful and they have good morals and we're going to go there and it's going to be wonderful. No, we're even going to see in the letter... The Cretans, even the Cretans say the Cretans are bad. I mean, they're, they're like, they, they themselves say that they live on the wrong side of the tracks. They're the, they're the dregs of the culture. They're, 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 they're sinners. The kind of people that we don't think could ever be saved. How are you going to help Titus? How are you going to help the few Cretans who are Christians? you're going to make sure they have strong convictions about the doctrine of election. You see? Because otherwise your tendency is going to be, they're so bad they could never be saved. No. I do all things for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Ah, oh, the blessed doctrine of election. We preach Christ to everybody, even the Cretans. And we preach Christ to everybody knowing full well that God has elected and that they have to come to faith in Jesus. Oh, this is awesome. See, this is relevant for us because we start thinking people, you know, those are such bad people. They deserve to go to hell. They could never be reached with the gospel. We give up praying for them. We're like, oh, just forget about it. Fuel on the fire? God has chosen people and they must come to believe and faith comes by hearing. Let's preach the gospel. Yeah! See, it's not meant to be a demotivator. It's meant to be a motivator. Are we going to get done today? It's meant to be awesome. 
when you look at the great evangelists in, in our recent, more recent history, they've been the people who believe this with conviction. William Carey, the father of what we used to call modern missions, went from the UK to India to preach the gospel to those quote-unquote unreachable people. You read William Carey's writings, not the abridged, you know, dumbed-down versions, with all that guy's heart fueling William Carey's ministry. Doctrine of election. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, I must go. Even when his denomination didn't want him to go, I must go. You start looking at other people as well. George Whitfield, the great evangelist who came from England to the United States and preached the gospel. And strong. Read Whitfield's writings about this. It's what compels him. It's what moves him. It's what keeps them from having to be manipulators. And so this is positive. I love Acts 13.48. Acts 13.48 says that those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. That's awesome. We preach Christ to everybody. All things for the sake of the faith of God's elect, knowing full well that those who have been appointed unto eternal life will believe. I haven't told the story for a long time, and I'm off on a a roll here, so I'm going to tell the story. When Todd Swift and I were in Russia teaching at a seminary on evangelism, one of us wrote on the board, all those who have been appointed unto eternal life will believe. It's essentially the wording of Acts 13.48. True or false? You know what those men said at that seminary? They said nothing. Because they couldn't answer. Because if they say true, they're not allowed at that time to be preachers in the Baptist Union in Russia. Because you can't believe in the doctrine of election and get a church. Thankfully, we had private meetings with the oral exams. Remember that one guy that scared us to heaven? He pushed his chair back. We're sitting in this little tiny room. You know, it's like the... It's in Russia. It's it's what you think. It's in Siberia. Where do they send bad people if they're bad in Siberia? I don't know. We're sitting there, and this guy, he looked at at you all week long like he wanted to kill you. I mean, he was just like the... He pushed his chair back and he stood up. I've told the story before I know, but he said, I believe like you believe. And we're like, praise Jesus. <laughs> I thought it was lights out, you know. I tell the story because it, 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 it's, it's as clear as the nose on my face, which is pretty clear. It's in the Bible. Read John chapter 6. Read John chapter 10. Jesus believes these things too. And it's never meant to be a, a limiter. It's meant to be a motivator and a freer. I believe salvation doesn't come to good people because there wouldn't be any. It doesn't come to the smartest people. It comes to the spiritually dead. Well, who've been chosen before the foundation of the world. They must hear the gospel to believe the gospel. And when they believe the gospel, they are justified. One more thing. If God damned everyone, he'd be fair, right? He'd be righteous. Wages of sin is death. But he has a great love, right? And he loves us. How about if he saved one? 
kind, gracious, merciful. Because they didn't deserve it. And the Bible teaches it's more people than we could ever count. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, people. Like the sands of the sea, the book of Revelation says. Why does God choose the way he chooses? I don't know. For his own good pleasure. I don't understand this, but I know it's in the Bible, and it's not meant to keep us from evangelism. It's meant to throw fuel on the fire for evangelism, because otherwise we start thinking people can't be saved. And God has chosen, and they must hear the gospel to believe. And so let's just throw the fuel on there and be fools for Jesus, telling all people, smart people, dumb people, people who look like us, people who don't look like us, people who from everywhere, the truth about Jesus, knowing full well that all those who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe. Conviction? Ah, oh, yeah. I want to say lots more. Sermons are my favorite place to lie. Oh, we're going to get done. We have seven points. Um, one more thing. <laughs> In history, the, the greatest opponent to this that I know of, he died in 1875. I didn't look up his birthday. Is the great American evangelist who didn't believe that people were dead in trespasses and sins. And so he did his whole ministry based upon manipulation. He believed he could convert people. He's the inventor of the altar call coming forward. His name is Charles Grandison Finney. At the end, he said, the vast majority of my converts are a disgrace to the Christian religion. I would suggest to you that though there are great numbers who come, when you don't believe in the depravity of men and women and their inability to be saved in and of themselves, and you don't believe in the doctrine of election, if you're consistent, you just end up with Charles Grandis and Finney. Let's not do that. Let's wonderfully, joyously, passionately be motivated to preach Christ, knowing full well that's how God saves people. Okay? Motivate it. Don't hang out with me today. I'll just evangelize you. And if you believe, I'll know you were elect. Okay, number three, a third conviction. Third conviction is truth. Okay, truth. Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Okay, capital T, the truth, like the faith. And the truth he's talking about, based upon verse 20, or verse 2, in hope of eternal life. It's the truth regarding eternal life. It's that kind of truth. It's gospel truth, which God who never lies. How about that for truth? Promised long ages uh, before the ages began. And so as Christians, we believe in, 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 in not just personal truth, we believe in capital T truth, the truth of the gospel. It's based upon reality. It's based upon history. That's why the, the old creed would say and the confession would say, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're not talking about some event that happened in Narnia or Middle Earth. We're not talking about fantasy. We're talking about real history, the truth about Jesus. Christians have convictions about reality, about the truth. 
Enough for now. Let's move on to the next one. Number four, godliness. Godliness. We have to have convictions about godliness. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel, the truth about eternal life, truth about Jesus, which accords with godliness. Which accords with godliness. Which is related to godliness. We're going to see it even produces godliness. And he's going to get into this in deep measure. And this has always been a controversy. Does godliness come first? And if you're godly enough, God will accept you. No, no, no. That's not how the truth of the gospel works. It's because of what Jesus has done in his perfect work in the gospel, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection. It comes to us by grace freely. It didn't come to him freely. He did a mighty work, shed his own blood. It comes to us freely, not by godliness, but the faith, the truth, which accords with godliness, which will produce godliness. And we're going to see this in the letter. This is super important for us because we do need a category for godliness. How are we going to get people to do the right thing? I mean, isn't it good to have Christians behaving goodly? <laughs> I mean, the Bible talks about a lot about doing the right thing. I mean, you summarize it based on Jesus by, by loving God and loving neighbor. That's what Christians are supposed to do. That's what all people are supposed to do. So how are we going to do it? Well, in Crete, one problem is people are saying, believe in Jesus and we've got some new special revelation for you. We've got some secrets. We've got some laws. We've got some new ways. And history is filled with this kind of stuff. It happens even now. Look at the books that we buy. The Apostle Paul is going to unpack later his conviction that comes from the Lord. Actually, the godliness is, is fruit. It's tied to, not divorced from. Those who are united to Christ died to sin and have been raised, this is Romans 6, unto newness of life. So however you teach people to grow in godliness, we're going to talk about that, it had better be tied to the work of Jesus, not some divorced, different thing. So we'll see that in more detail. Chapter 2, we'll see it. I can't wait. Number 5. Promise. Are we on number 5? I skip one? Some of you aren't paying attention, so you don't know. You're like, man, just get to point six. I paid last week. Number five, promise. This is an awesome promise. This is related to what we were talking about before. In verse two, in hope, Paul does what he does, and he wants Titus to do what he does, and us to do what we do, I would say. In hope, strong conviction of eternal life. Okay, so far so good. Which God who never lies... Promise. There's our conviction word. We better have a conviction about God's promise. But notice it's past tense. Promised. Past tense because before the ages began. God made a promise before time began. Verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested in His word through the preaching. And we could unpack it, but we're going to stop there. And as I mentioned last time in your margin... Some of your translations say the Greek would literally be rendered before times eternal. And isn't it interesting to make sure you connect that verse with the verse that came before, which talked about 
doing all things for the sake of the faith of God's elect, having to do with eternal life, promised before the ages began. I mean, we are... We're into it now. I mean, this is... I mean, this is advanced Christianity. I'm being sarcastic. It's like basic stuff. But it's not basic to us because we, we dare not even think about such things. No, we need to think about things with conviction. God, before the ages began, before time began, in eternity past, we would say, made a promise. What? I remember the first time I ever heard about any of this stuff. I'm like, this, this can't be true, but I believe the Bible is true. And there it is. He didn't ask me, you know, it's just like we, we get all kind of worked up because God's busy acting like God, being free to do what he wants to do. But why, why, why be troubled by it? It's, it's conviction for Paul that's going to fuel even his message to Titus, and it's going to fuel Titus's pastoral ministry in the church at Crete, so the church has a good ministry, especially to unbelievers. Motivating. God promised before the ages began. The God who doesn't lie. Eternal life. Whoa! I mean, we are in the weeds. Is that, I don't even know if that's the right thing to say. I mean, it's probably not. I mean, this, this, think about this. God did this? No one was there? God did this. It's amazing. I think it should cause us to worship before we even try to figure it out. The eternal God. How about that? There's a sermon series. The eternal God. Existing before what we know to be reality. Promised. It's a promise for eternal life. can't, we're in the deep end of the pool. That's what I should have said, right? I, I, I can't figure this one out. But it does teach it in the Bible. Oh, man. Let, let's just jump in for a minute or two. Eternal life? I mean, isn't that what it's teaching? In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Eternal life. How can people gain eternal life? By being perfect? How's that going to work out? If people are perfect, they're going to get eternal life. That's how God's law works. Jesus himself said so. Luke chapter 10. Do this, love God and love your neighbor perfectly, and you will live Based upon all the other contexts where that's used, it's eternal life. So how could God, before time begins, promise uh, eternal life? Given the fact that as we look at each other and we look in the mirror, none of us have loved God perfectly and loved our neighbor as ourselves perfectly. So none of us have earned eternal life, do this and live, and yet God promised to give eternal life, do this and live. You know the answer. 
His name is Jesus. Who did this? Loved God, loved neighbor, fulfilled the law so that eternal life would come to all who believe in him. You mean God planned that before the foundation of the world? Yeah. This is, this is staggering to the mind. And then it changes everything. Talk about convictions. Whoa. And then you read John chapter 17 and you see this. And this is amazing what this triune God has done. Awesome. And by the way, this does affect then the way I read my Bible. It wasn't after 39 books he came up with the plan. So now we can start looking for one who did this so that we might live eternally. Before the foundation of the world, the plan was made. I'm looking for hints of it along the way as history is unfolding. This happened pre-Genesis. I don't know about you, but I'm just having fun thinking about it. I just want to be like caught up in this moment and, you know, just call out for Papa John's or something. You just go, this is, this is, this is where angels dare not tread. I mean, this is pretty amazing. It doesn't make me feel very big and it doesn't make me feel very in charge and maybe that's why it sometimes rubs me the wrong way. God does this before the ages began. Okay, let's keep going. Conviction about that, I would hope, to fuel our evangelism and perspective. Number six, trust. We're on to new stuff. Wake up your husband and wife, maybe. Trust. This word is trust, okay? Not uh, trust as in entrusted. This is an awesome one. This is, a, this is a, a, an important one for us as a church. How about we pick it up in verse... I so want to read it all. Let's just pick... So we, remember what we just read in verse 2, that, that, that awesome stuff about the triune God. How about verse 3? And at the proper time, manifested, made clear, made known what wasn't known before because it was in, in eternity past. At the proper time, manifested in His Word through the preaching which I have been entrusted. There's our conviction word. Have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So again, it's not bad entrustment. It's good. He's a saving God. But the saving God, Paul is saying, has entrusted me with something. He's... he's Giving me a sacred trust, right? And, and Paul, with conviction, and then he's going to share that idea, that concept, that sense with Titus, so he can share it with the church, that we should be men and women who think, act, talk, carry out ministry to the lost and to the saved, knowing full well that this has been entrusted to us. In other words, it's not ours. Okay? In another sense, it is ours because they're to be our convictions. Personal, right? But in another sense, this is not ours. It's been entrusted. It's, it's on loan, but that's too cheap of a way to look at it. We're talking about something valuable, of the utmost value, the gospel, the truth, the faith. The, 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 the reality that's tied to eternity past. 
the purpose of God, the promise of God, the plan of God, the God who doesn't lie, doing ministry, doing all things for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that they might come to believe in Jesus. It's been entrusted to us. Sometimes those who are parents talk about how they, they think their children are, are on loan from God to them. Good perspective. They've been entrusted to us, and so we want to raise them up to honor the Lord. And that, that, that's getting at this idea. If you borrow something from someone, again, it's kind of cheapening the idea, but I'm just trying to at least get us thinking about, hopefully, you're going to take better care of it than if it were even yours. It's been entrusted. And the list could go on with illustrations. But the idea is, we're going to protect it. We're not going to tinker with it. We're not going to look for new ways to do church. We're not looking for the next big thing. How about our big thing is tied to before the ages began? Talk about irrelevant. Your message and your ministry is so cotton-picking old. It's like it's even before Genesis or something. Hello. Yeah. Because it's so old, it's eternal and will always be relevant. Forever and always. It's been entrusted to us. It's awesome. We're cutting edge. You know? Always cutting edge. So cool. You have that conviction as a church? We preach Christ. We preach Christ to everybody. Yeah, but you got to get with the times. Times before times eternal, you mean? <laughs> and by the way, this is what would keep you relevant. It doesn't have to change with culture. It can flex with culture. Right? There are cultural entrapments that, that we can negotiate about. When to meet, where to meet, how long to meet. We should meet longer. It's a new cultural norm. I'm just deciding. Those things are flexible. But the eternal truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and how people are saved can't flex. Won't flex. It's exciting. Entrusted. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's one of my favorites from a former pastor of mine. And he said, what we need to do is think in terms of being waiters and waitresses. Not chefs. When it comes to the gospel, you know, you, you pick up the order from the kitchen. And your job is not to, on your way to the table, put some seasoning salt on. Your job on the way to the table is not to put some pepper on there or some paprika or some cumin or some garlic. The master chef has entrusted something to you and your job, your ministry, your calling is to get that plate to the table the way it left the kitchen. I like waiters and waitresses. The illustration will break down, I know. We're delivering the good news. It's great news. Never to be improved upon. 
knowing full well that the elect will believe? Yes. So the people who we bring it to, I'm, I'm, now I'm, I'm going to stop. If they don't like the taste of it, it's not on us. Even if it's the best meal ever anyone has ever seen. That was for free. I didn't even put that in my notes. Okay, number seven, finally. The final one, another conviction word is the word order. Order. Verse four, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete. And by the way, you might want to read there, you left me in Crete. It's a terrible place. No one will ever come to believe. Remember election. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order. There's our word. Structure. Things in their proper places. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And we're going to get to that next time. But notice order. There's a way for a church to be structured. There's a way for authority to work. There's a way for accountability to happen. There's a way for all of this to be put in place properly. Again, that would transcend culture. That would transcend time. That would transcend languages. There's a way to order things. That will fit any culture, any language, any time, because we're talking about something that has been promised in eternity past. So cool. To be a part of this, to be a part of this is beyond cool. I have nothing to complain about today. None of us do. Saved, how awesome is that? And then to be part of the church? What an awesome thing. What an extraordinary thing. Well, there's more, as you might imagine, but we're going to stop there for now. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the desire that you give to us and the the new life that is in Christ and the zeal that can be ours for godliness and for promoting Christ and for proclaiming Christ. May we not grow weary, whether we're in our own little personal Crete or someplace that seems to be a lot, lot more wonderful. May we find ourselves as a church clinging to these things. Not because we're good and not because we somehow are, are smarter, but because you're, you're the God of grace and the God who has a powerful Holy Spirit and a clear word. Give us good days ahead where we see fruit and we find ourselves all the more compelled to proclaim Christ because of these things. May they be true convictions that are, that are not just some of ours, but all of ours. May Christ be honored and praised. In Jesus' name, amen.